Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. And uh, hello to you. It's April Fool's Day. Mother Nature getting her chuckles by snowing on us after providing us with this spring-like March. <laughs> anyway, just remember that. It's April Fool's Day, okay? Because uh, things can happen. I am not a prankster, uh, so you don't have to worry about me. But some of you do associate with prankster types, right? Um, I, I I should start today by, by uh, saying that this is the last show that Amy, my wonderful producer, is going to be doing for us. Um, she got a real job. <laughs> yeah. After years of listening to me rant and rave and scream and squawk, she is decamping to a library <laughs> where she gets to say, shh, quiet. I'm sure she's wanted to do that many a time to me. Uh, and I also get paid for doing it. And I, I'm really happy for you, Amy, really happy. Um, because that's a full-time, this is obviously not a full-time job for her. It's a full-time job. And uh, she's just been the best. You know, it's funny because uh, the the um, producer before Amy uh, was Stephen Caruso, and he left me to take a reporting job. And he has since been on the show as a guest because he he reports on state government in in Harrisburg. So uh Amy if any big library stories come up I'm going to be reaching out to you. Uh Amy will be replaced by by Zach. Um and I know Zach's going to do a great job too. He's already somebody who labors at Pittsburgh City Paper so they just dumped me onto him. I'm I'm appreciative that he's uh, said yes, but uh, great run, Amy. You've been wonderful, just wonderful, and Godspeed and good luck. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, you know, you're leaving a, such a powerful person. Just yesterday, I was squawking, screaming um, about how I thought Governor Wolf had really pretty much botched the vaccine rollout here and how they needed to open it up and stop nickel and diming it, that it wasn't working, that it was nuts. And uh, you see how powerful I am? Before the day was out, he uh, he pretty much uh, backtracked, reverse course, and it's going to be totally opened up in two weeks, right? And it's starting to cave already. So that's good. People who want the shots are going to be able to access the shots. That's fantastic. Also, my power apparently has also been felt in Atlanta, where I was squawking and screaming about the corporations there totally being silent and complicit 
as the Georgia legislature passed these onerous uh, new Jim Crow laws uh, to suppress the black vote. And uh, yesterday we were talking about it, and I talked about how a number of black uh, executives, the most powerful black uh, corporate leaders in the country, had uh, come together and were really putting pressure on their white colleagues. And that is exactly what happened yesterday. Um, the, uh, the former CEO of American Express, who was one of the people who, uh, who signed, took out a full page ad in uh, the New York Times going after uh, Delta, Coca-Cola, UPS, Home Depot, to name a few. And uh, geez, <clears throat> those guys about-faced and capitulated immediately. Of course, it's a little late since the law has, is a law now. They sat there while it became a law. So now they're coming out with statements like, after talking to their these black executives, here's the now the CEO of Delta who was mute before. The entire rationale for this bill was based on a lie that there was widespread voter fraud in Georgia in the 2020 elections. That is simply not true, says the CEO of Delta Airlines. Unfortunately, that excuse is being used in states across the nation that are attempting to pass similar legislation to restrict voting rights. And he said, I need to make it crystal clear that the final bill is unacceptable. Well, it ain't the final bill. It's now a law. You missed the boat. So now what? They're going to be pressuring him to repeal the law? Good luck with that. Uh, this does bode well, perhaps, for uh, getting corporate America to put the kibosh on some of these other uh, efforts in other states uh, to do the same. And also, uh, the baseball players, God bless them, they have now very seriously come out and said they think that the All-Star Game, which is scheduled for July in Atlanta, needs to go somewhere else. That is not a done deal yet, but we'll see. The funny thing um, I noted in the uh, statements that came out is the Coca-Cola exec said, I want to be crystal clear. That is exactly what the Delta exec said. I need to make it crystal clear. He said, <laughs> why? So both these guys released statements that use the term crystal clear. Do you think they were, I mean, do they have the same PR person? I don't know. It's That struck me as, as odd. But at any rate, sometimes better late than never. I hope that's the case uh, here. Who the heck knows? Um. You know, yesterday also I shared with you a book review of John Edgar Weidman's most recent collection of short stories. Um, he, the renowned uh, author from Pittsburgh, 
who like uh, August Wilson uh, grew up black in this uh, city that has not been kind to uh, its black residents and continues not to be. Um, and today I turn to the book review and it's another Pittsburgh book. What is going on? New York Times, I'm telling you, this one's another rave review. And this is not fiction. This one is, uh, this is a book called The Next Shift. And it's about what happened to Pittsburgh in the last 50 years. Pretty much since I came here is I witnessed the whole thing. I came here um, and things just imploded. I, I sort of wondered if it was something, uh, hey, you guys, as hundreds of thousands of people literally left when I showed up in 80, 80 and 81. And I... I thought, uh, please stop. I mean, I when I got the job in television here, Pittsburgh was the sixth largest television market. When I think now it is, I don't even think it's in the top 25. <laughs> so when I came here, I was coming to this big time city and it just started disappearing sort of like those slugs I was putting salt on. But this book gets a rave review. It says here it's an original work of serious scholarship, but it's also vivid and readable. And it desentimentalizes what many have come to remember about the steel city. And, um, the reviewer puts it this way. It sounds like a very interesting book for people who like reading about your own hometown and how it sort of stands as an exemplar uh, of what has happened uh, to American workers. And it's not a happy story. It is not a happy story. As he points out, decades after the collapse of the steel industry, Pittsburgh exemplifies how the memory of an old identity can live on. Lives on in a football team, the Steelers. Lives on in a nickname, the Steel City. Lives on in the local beer, Iron City. While the industry that actually flourishes in Pittsburgh now is health care. And that industry does not garner any kind of reverence or recognition. You know why? Because the fastest growth in this new economic engine of Pittsburgh, the healthcare industry, is not for doctors and it's not for you know x-ray techs it's for those tons and tons of poorly paid caregiver jobs and who who has most of those jobs women 
and blacks. These are the people that, you know, this last year we called essential. We thanked them so very much, but not so much on payday. As the author of this book, The Next Shift, says, care workers are at once everywhere and nowhere. They are responsible for everyone, but no one is responsible for them. And he apparently in this book just draws the line of what happened in the steel industry and then with deindustrialization and how, in fact, that deindustrialization got connected to the rise of healthcare. He says that, you know, there was a time when the steel worker union, steel workers union, was just constantly getting higher wages, higher wages that outstripped inflation. But then they started getting a lot of pressure from government to keep the wages down. And so the unions pivoted and they bargained for not higher pay, but for better health insurance, which generated its own inflationary dynamic in the health care industry. And so this guy traces that into what he says evolved into essentially a public-private welfare state. And that is the state that awaited the workers that were cast off by the collapsing steel industry. You know what two industries really prospered when that happened as the industry went down? Two, healthcare and prisons. So those were the two paths that awaited a lot of people who found themselves without work, without opportunities, without a skill set that anybody wanted. And because hospital work is labor intensive, it had a need for a whole ton of workers. And who was always first displaced when industry started to melt down? The last hired. Those would be black people. So black America, black Pittsburgh, were the first to be displaced by the decline and their exploitation, according to this book, formed the basis of the bonanza that was awaiting everyone else. This workforce was largely excluded from the prosperity and security it helped to create Caregiving, he says, could be offered at large volume to the insured parts of the working class because its costs were passed on 
in such significant proportion to hospital employees. What? Yeah, because they got paid nothing. Hospital employees via low wages on their backs, this new sort of health care welfare state started up. I don't quite understand all of this, but the review is a rave. The book is called The Next Shift. It is by Gabriel Winant, uh, published by Harvard uh, University. Uh, I'll, I'll just finish with this one thing. Um, toward the end of the book, he, the author introduces us to a medical secretary a woman named Nyla Payton. And he says she takes calls all day from patients with mesothelioma and black lung at the pathology office where she works. The place where she works is part of Pittsburgh's enormous hospital complex. We can read that as UPMC. So she works at UPMC, and it says here her office is so understaffed that it is sometimes hard to find someone to cover the phone when she needs to use the bathroom. And she says because of that, her bladder has been damaged. And in nine years of working there, she has never received more than a 15-cent raise. Yep, that sounds like UPMC, right? So anyway, just a shout out to you that um, how Pittsburgh offers up one of the starkest examples of a local economy, not simply shaped, by this overwhelming one industry, the steel industry, but warped by it as well. So it's a different, it's obviously a different narrative in this book than what we tell ourselves about Pittsburgh and its amazing reinvention. Okay. He is saying, yeah, yeah, you lost half your population, but you're Look, looks like you're really doing well. Well, look closer. Look closer. And don't be surprised when you see that it's on the backs of mostly low-paid women and black people. Okay? Jeez. Well, that wasn't happy. Oh, so let me give you an update. You remember the story I told you about the dueling obituaries? <laughs> it, it, this story just keeps getting more and more. It, it, it just keeps on giving. So today in the obituary section, <laughs> this woman, um, let's see. She got the, the the mother. I'll give you her name, Antonietta Lopardo Costa, and she gets one of those big obits written by one of the 
uh, paper's reporters. It's a big, big obit. And um, her regular obituary, I believe, is still there. There is this. And then, not quite in the um, in the section uh, where the obits are, I think it's in that celebration section, her son, the one son who is not acknowledged in the in the obituary, who wrote a letter, I, I, it is it is beyond belief. He now has taken it's bigger. He's got half a page of his letter about how he was her favorite. Yada yada yada. You read the regular obit, and he's not even mentioned. They mentioned three children. He ain't one of them. And yet there's this half-page letter about how he's her favorite. I, it, beyond belief. And now we have Janice Crompton of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette writing uh, a piece uh, about this woman. And I couldn't wait to see what she did with, <laughs> with the survivors. <laughs> and sure enough, as we're reading, um, she she's interviewing some of the other some of the the son that was not the one putting this letter uh, in the paper, and and she talks specifically the reporter does about uh, this woman's family and says she loved Sunday dinners with her family, including her daughters, uh, who's a retired radiologist. And another one who's a pharmacist, along with her 15 grandchildren. And then there's the other son who was also a doctor. Okay? So she doesn't mention Alfonso. I'm thinking, oh, my God, she, the reporter's not mentioning Alfonso either. Maybe he's just some delusional person. At the very end of the PG reporter's obit, she says this. She also is survived by another son, Alfonso. <laughs> I'm sorry, but geez, what's the back story? It's, too, it's not fun. I mean, obviously for this family, it's very painful, but uh, I can't believe it. Oh, God. Janet says, please give yesterday's book title. Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's something like, say that you love me. Look, look it up. John Edgar Weidman, right? And it's his most recent uh, collection, just out. I, I can't remember the title, Janet. I'm sorry. Titles, names of songs, names of people. These are things that 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 exist only for nanoseconds in my brain. And then they go somewhere and die. I have no idea. Well, I don't know if you're attempting to watch this uh, Chauvin trial. Jesus, God in heaven, I couldn't yesterday. I started to, 
And then I found myself reaching for the, I, I, I just kept putting it on mute. I, the, what they're doing now is showing video that no one's ever seen before. It's the video of taken from the cops, the killer cops, body cameras. And oh my God, it's unbearable. And what's also unbearable, really unbearable, is the grief of the witnesses, one after the other, breaks down. These are not people that knew the guy. These are people who happened to witness. And you can see the damage done to, to them. And they, they all, to the kid who took, the, who was the clerk at the store that took the supposedly counterfeit 20 from, um, I guess it was counterfeit 20, that he himself probably didn't know was counterfeit. I mean, uh, Floyd was passing. And his regret at not just, at, his initial reaction was to let it go. But the fact that somebody, and he did, but somebody else then called the cops after he, I guess, told them that he thought he had a counterfeit 20. And he said, if I hadn't said anything, he'd still be alive. The grief and guilt and regret. You know who clearly doesn't have any grief or regret or guilt? Chauvin. Reporters have said that he has watched all of this body camera footage with seeming interest, but no emotion. And even from his own body camera, there is this absolute chilling exchange where he's trying to explain after, after, after Floyd has been hauled off in an ambulance, dead. He's just killed a man. And he, to hear his voice, just very matter-of-factly saying, well, you know, he might have been on, uh, we thought he was like, he needed to be controlled. I mean, I don't know. I would imagine that most people who've just killed somebody that their heart is racing I don't think this Chauvin has a heart. And in fact, a commentator, I think on CNN said it was clear he is cold hearted. Oh my God, it is searing. And I don't care how many of you yesterday told me that uh, you agree with my son that Chauvin's going to get off. I don't think he is. I do not think he is. And granted, I'm saying this before I hear, you know, what the defense can, uh, can offer up. But I think the evidence 
is so damning. Oh, and that reminds me, and I don't know if uh, Beth is one of the people who lives in West Virginia who wrote me yesterday during the show saying she agreed with my son about that. But Beth, if you're listening, I, I thought of you today when I was thinking about, um, you know, these uh, corporate types uh, about facing on uh, on the Georgia voting <laughs> suppression. And in the article I read, it, it just said toward the bottom, I'm just remembering this, that there are a lot of Hollywood productions going on right now in Georgia. And that all of those studios who employ a lot of people who have clout have been totally silent. Mm -hmm. I know we think of Hollywood as left. If they're so left, why haven't we heard a peep about what Georgia just did while they're showering Georgia with their money? Hmm? I want to know. Okay. What else we got? What else we got? So the Supreme Court of these here United States uh, heard a case yesterday um, about the NCAA and, and why it's perfectly reasonable. Uh, why it's, oh, damn, come on, you. Hang on here. You're not letting me open this. And why it's perfectly reasonable that uh, colleges should make huge, huge amounts of money off the labor of athletes. And the athletes should get, well, what? So they get a, supposedly a free education and um, yeah, I know. So let me read it. God. Dang it. Okay, they're not going to. Okay, screw it. I can't, I, this is where, I mean, I can't be talk, thinking, talking, and, and trying to tell the Digital Washington Post that I own this and I should be able to read it, you creep. Here. Do I have a caller? I'm sorry, I heard a buzz, but I didn't, I didn't look fast enough. If I have a caller, hello. Hello, Lynn. Yes. Oh, hi, hi, it's Beth. I was Good. calling. You were there. So I was there. And yes, we are kind of shocked too. I mean, everything in Georgia is still going full bore right now with film because of the tax incentive. I actually got a call about a show there this week. Um, so there's a Georgia makes it nice and oh, uh, real. They give. Yeah, are amazing. Their incentive is the biggest in the country. So that's why I would say, I'll roughly say 70% of the product that you watch on streaming service, theaters, TV, is filmed in Georgia. 60 to uh -huh. 70, we'll say that. I mean, well, so, so okay, so, so if that's true, then um, 
then these companies have a lot of clout, you would think, if they were uh, to pull out. Yes. Well, first of all, what has to happen is, is, and this is what I've always said, it drives me nuts whenever you hear the term liberal Hollywood. The actors, the people who are the starlets, they may be more on the liberal side, but it's a business, and it's a very conservative business. There's nothing liberal about it. Um, if you start having these people saying, we're not going there, things might change. The problem is you're going to be affecting a ton of people who are already opposed to this legislation um, who work in that industry. You have Tyler Perry, who, I mean, invested a ton of his own money converting an old army base there that opened and his stages opened like a couple months before the pandemic really hit. So you're going to be hitting the, those people that maybe you don't want to affect. I don't know. This is not an easy, uh, an easy call. If you had some of the stars saying we're not going to go to Georgia, I think then the studios would start to listen and say, hey, we're not doing this. Um, one of the biggest filmers, if, if anybody wants to hit anybody, it's Disney through Marvel Studios. Uh, they have a massive complex in Peachtree City, Georgia, where all, a lot of the Disney streaming service and Marvel product, um, you know, not your big, you know, Thor and all those, but your kind of second tier, they're filming. Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And they take a full advantage of the tax credit. So Disney would definitely be one to, uh, to call and remind that this is not the place to be. Well, Tyler Perry, though, should maybe say something. I don't know. I understand what you're saying, but geez. Yeah, it's it's not an I easy, mean, and again, you have to understand, too, you know, we kind of had a bet with, with my parents before election of how much would Biden win by electoral votes, this whole joke, and then we kind of had a teaser bet. And my teaser bet was Georgia was going blue. And wow. And the reason why I thought that was, first of all, the growth of Atlanta, but the amount of people in the entertainment industry that have left California that have relocated to Atlanta. It has helped that shift. I mean, I would say you easily have 10 to 20,000 people that have relocated to that city from L.A. Okay. Uh -huh. So I yep. don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I'm sure you're going to have a couple celebrities that are saying, no, we're not going there. You know, Tyler Perry, who knows if he's able to say anything. I mean, I'm sure he is. But, um, you know, right now he's wow. kind of stuck in a, he's stuck in a bad place because mm -hmm. whatever investors he had, I mean, he did not take a cheap undertaking lens. Doing a studio is massive. And he thought, well, hey, the way this thing is going, I will have money back here fourfold. He was one of the first people to start filming in this industry during COVID, one of the absolute first. Because it was an old army base, he had studio apartments converted from the army barracks on that studio lot so that his crew mm -hmm. could be quarantined for two weeks and then they could just film like crazy and then leave and then do the same thing again. Wow. Just because he needed product. Wow. So uh, He's something else, huh? Jesus, what a... What yeah, a I'm... And a guy with so much energy and <laughs> I can't believe the stuff he does. I always make fun of his movies. I mean, as you know, uh, but yeah, he's a powerhouse. He's a powerhouse. And also who knows how much state incentive he took or got from grants and stuff in getting that project going as well. 
Yeah. So he may feel like, oh, shoot, I don't know how much I can really say. And also, do you want to upset your, you know, corporations that are then putting your product out there? Oh, so are you saying nothing is as easy as it seems? Are you (laughs) saying things are complicated? But that's interesting. I knew you would. Yeah, I knew you would have the kind of information I wanted. Thank you. You are welcome. And if I hear anything else, I'll let you know. But yeah, Georgia's definitely the the filming within the last two months nationwide, globally, has really it's come back to where it was pre pandemic. That's amazing. Okay. It absolutely is. Well, they're shooting here. I mean, I know there's a Sandra O has been uh, in Shady Side and Oakland. They've been shooting on Fifth Avenue. Yeah, you have two projects in town, and I know there are two more that are possibly looking looking at Pittsburgh also, and, and one of which, maybe that was one of the pullouts from Georgia. And again, you know, we would get some, of, Pittsburgh would get some of that overflow as well, just because things in Atlanta were so busy. I mean, your crew was just maxed out. So you would start to look for other states and other areas that had incentives that would, you know, they weren't as big as Georgia's, but they were comparable. Gotcha. Well, you're a fount of information. Thank you, Beth. You're welcome. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Obviously, she works in the industry. That's why she knows. Okay. So the Supreme Court was hearing this NCAA suit. And it's fascinating to hear what the – it sounds like the NCAA is going to have to rethink its business model a little bit because both the liberal and the conservative justices, if you judge from their questions uh, where they stand on this, they're not buying the NCAA's uh, argument that you know, well, this is how it's always been done. The student athletes, the history is is so extraordinary. Why would you mess with such a wonderful thing? I mean, you got you got Kavanaugh uh, saying this: the antitrust law should not be a cover for exploitation of student athletes. He went on to say. I mean, to pay no salaries to the workers, <laughs> to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars. Uh, and what the NCAA is arguing is that we, the fans, love it the way it is and want it to stay. And Kavanaugh is saying, if you think that sports fans even think about this stuff, you're nuts. And if you are arguing to us that this sweet deal you have is because consumers of the product want the schools to pay their workers nothing, I don't think that that would prove to be true. It is rare, I will quote Justice Clarence Thomas, who said to the attorneys, for the NCAA. I mean, it just strikes me as odd that the coaches' salaries, my God, they ballooned. 
And if this is an amateur sport, then those coaches are in the amateur ranks as well. <laughs> Samuel Olito, listen to this. Actually talking about how these athletes are totally exploited. Listen to this. They face training requirements that leave little time or energy for study. They face constant pressure to put sports above study, pressure to drop out of hard majors and hard classes, shockingly low graduation rates. Only a tiny percentage ever go on to make any money in professional sports. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside, often without even a college degree. How can this be defended? Uh, not a good day at the Supreme Court yesterday for the NCAA, and I can't think of a more noxious body, truly. I didn't, and I didn't get into what the NCAA, in terms of the March Madness, uh, did regarding you know the difference uh, between the men and the and the women's accommodations and all of that. I'm sure you've. You're aware of it and read about it, but the NCAA is just the worst, just the worst. Oh, boy. And speaking of the worst, I, you know, women, women, we have been fighting for a long, long time for dignity, for equality, for in this patriarchal world. And, and we women, lucky enough to live, even in this country, <laughs> we have seen some pretty incredible changes. Not enough, but we've seen pretty incredible changes. Or I wouldn't be talking to you now, right? This would not be a woman's job at all. But I bring this up because I just read this horrific story out of India, which shows how women, women in so many countries still live in a, in a, a terror, a terrorist existence. They live in terror. This most recent thing, I mean, in India, God, I don't know what... Two years ago, a teenager in India was set on fire after her parents uh, uh, said that uh, she had been raped. So what do you do? You set her rapist on fire? No, no. You put her on fire. Uh, Some have calculated that the average number of rapes committed daily in India works out to one every 15 minutes. God almighty. And here is a woman, no, a girl, 16, a neighbor, pushed her to the floor, stuffed a cloth in her mouth and raped her. You know what her mistake was? She ran 
to her parents. And her parents, her brother, her father, some of the others, they hunted down the neighbor and they beat him. They beat him up. And then they tied her to him with a rope and paraded the two through the markets, through the fields, in the village where they were kicked, punched, and spit upon. I'm just saying. Hey, I've got some uh, emails to uh, to share with you. For, this came in yesterday, and I want to. We were talking. Somebody brought up the uh, question of so when Minneapolis pays out, I forget what it was, something like twenty three million dollars or something, to George Floyd's uh, family. Uh, someone said, "Who's paying that? You mean that's on the taxpayers? <laughs> Jeez." You would think it would – if it's on the taxpayers, you would think that taxpayers of all political stripes would be you know, uh, on the cops to stop, stop what they're doing because it's killing us. It's killing our budget, right? You know, people care about money. Taxes might have to be raised because cops are killing people and you got to pay restitution. So Christopher wrote this to me and he, I had thought they have insurance and I bet insurance pays it. That was my response. And he tells me he doesn't think so. He says this, um, I would conjecture that most municipalities of size are self-insured. This is common for large organizations too. A large company does not usually pay health insurance premiums directly to an insurance company, for example. They would contract with a health insurer for access to their negotiated provider pricing and for administration of claims and payments. But the company just ends up paying the direct costs of the claims and shouldering the cost, cost risk themselves. And according to the Star Tribune in the Minneapolis paper, Minneapolis has a self-insurance fund, but it has been depleted, I bet. The city says that they have been trying to build up reserve funds and says that taxes won't be increased. But the bottom line is Minneapolis taxpayers are paying every single cent of that $27 million awarded to George Floyd's family. And just two years ago, Christopher tells me, they paid every cent of the $20 million settlement in another death at the hands of police. The city of Pittsburgh, he says, has moved to self-insurance on several fronts, including employees' health insurance and auto insurance. I believe that the city police liability is also self-insured because what insurance company would want to take on the risks associated with policing? Right. 
And then Christopher says, and a reminder, the city paid five and a half million dollars to Leon Ford to settle a civil suit stemming from his incapacitating injury suffered at the hands of Pittsburgh's finest. And this, he said, appeared to come directly from taxpayer funds. As the payments to Mr. Ford were scheduled over three years and the settlement was subject to city council approval. Okay, so thank you very much for that. Um, very uh, fact-filled um, and interesting uh, bit correcting my uh, assumptions. I really do appreciate that. Uh, Craig writes, the Georgia legislature is going after the Delta CEO. <laughs> how are they how are they able to go after him? How are they going after Delta? Why would they go after a, a cash cow like that? So the Georgia, you know, he finally came out, uh, finally, late yesterday. Uh, he, he's saying they tried to cut their state support, although the Senate balked at the idea. Oh, so they did. They tried to get back at him for what he said. Unbelievable. And Mary writes regarding these incredible Pittsburgh authors, black authors, Pittsburgh, she says two things. Regarding the black exodus from Pittsburgh, Disha Filia, whose book I have on my next to my bed, Disha Filia, who wrote The Secret Life of Church Ladies, posted on Twitter, oh God, no, I didn't see that, posted on Twitter that she was looking for suggestions of places to move to because she's decided she's had enough of Pittsburgh. And Mary says that Atlanta was the top recommendation, as was Philadelphia. No, Pittsburgh, you just keep treating people like crap and they're going to pack up and leave. And um, Mary also tells us, I don't know if you're aware that there is a permanent art installation by Jenny Holzer on the roof of the convention, convention center uh, called For Pittsburgh. I'm, yeah, I'm vaguely aware of it. It's a streaming thing, right? It's, it's, it's like digital streaming. It's, yeah, it streams continuously in two parallel LED light displays, the texts of Annie Dillard's An American Childhood, she also a Pittsburgh writer, uh, about growing up in Point Breeze, and Weidman's trilogy about growing up in Homewood. They stream side by side overhead with a walkway between them, much the way Penn Avenue ran between the two very different lives experienced by a white girl and a black boy in Pittsburgh at around the same time. I often wonder if the city understood how subversive Holzer was being when she selected those two texts. So one, a story, Annie Dillard, of growing up as a rich white girl in Point Breeze and Weidman's trilogy about growing up a black kid in Homewood. And they stream, you know, I've never walked 
that walk in the convention center. I've always, you know, got someplace to go, so I'm always just running in a door. So I will make a point of, uh, of taking that in. Thank you for reminding me. Annie Dillard's house, um, I, I so loved that book. I mean, both of these, it, it, you know, she lives on a street, a, a, a little, just one street over from where I live. I mean, the house that she uh, lived in when she wrote An American Childhood. And uh, she's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And then just up the same street is the house that, um, oh, don't leave me now, the house that uh, David McCullough, the popular historian and Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, lived in. It's a, yeah, it's a totally different, wow. Wow. And do you know, I mean, stop and think about it, how close Homewood and Point Breeze are. They are truly just separated by Penn Avenue. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Wow. I remember when I would visit um, my then friend, uh, Vanessa German, who lives in Homewood, the artist and uh, performance artist and sculptor and all around pretty amazing human being. Um, uh, I would drive, what? I, I don't think it was even a mile. I'm in Point Breeze, she's in Homewood cross Penn Avenue and I just go down a little bit and I remember how it struck me you cross Penn Avenue and you leave this you know marvelous Pittsburgh neighborhood right that you call home and you go into this often scary neighborhood that she calls home Wow. That's heavy stuff, Mary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will make a point of going and, and looking at that. Wow. Ah, uh, yes. There's been another two more people dead because of, of a gender reveal. When will people stop it? What nonsense. This is has to do with a plane, people out on a boat, and then a plane flying over drops a pink cloud uh, showing, it's a girl, it's a girl. And then the plane crashes into the water and kills two people on board. I'm just saying, you just can't, can't deal with this stuff too much. And then just finishing up with the cops, I've been sitting on some of this for some time. You know, a lot of communities after the Black Lives Matter protests 
um, and the trouble they brought, not from the protesters generally, but from the police. Thank you very much. I took part in one of those marches. I was so impressed by the the BLM uh, organizers and what they did and how they controlled the march and always told people, don't leave a mess, pick up after yourself. We'll leave this place cleaner than when we were here. It, 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 they were, it was exemplary. I was just blown away. And then cops show up in riot gear, right? So a lot of police and cities have started doing, well, looking back and saying, how do we do? And what did we do wrong? And how can we learn? And these reports are starting to trickle in. And it doesn't matter what city, they all pretty much say the same thing. In city after city, the reports done by the cities themselves are a damning indictment of police of heavily militarized police, stunningly unprepared. Using, using tactics that are for overwhelmingly peaceful protests are insane because they incite they do the exact opposite of what the police should be doing. You know, at least eight people were blinded last year because they were hit with some, you know, police projectile in their eye. They're blind now, okay? And that's the kind of sort of willy-nilly, you just start shooting things, thinking you're telling people, stop, stop go no further, we want you to get out of here, you're blinding people, you're killing people. The people doing these reviews found that officers often behaved aggressively, they wore riot gear, they sprayed tear gas uh, indiscriminately at peaceful demonstrators. In a largely peaceful Chicago protest on May 30, a demonstrator told the people who were the inspector general who was doing the report that the mood shifted the minute police arrived. The, the quote from this, uh, from this report is, they were dressed in riot gear. They had batons in their hands. We were just chanting. So report after report repeatedly blames the police for escalating the violence instead of de-escalating it, and at times looking as if they were on the front lines of a war. Yes, and that's what happened here in Pittsburgh. And that's why a lot of people are not happy with Bill Caduto, because he so readily sided with the cops over and over and over again. A former police chief in Seattle says this, what we have been doing needs to be acknowledged as failure. 
We made these same mistakes trying to contain the World Trade Organization protests. Pittsburgh made the same mistakes. Remember when the G20 came here or the G7 or whatever the G, whatever they were, right? Remember that? Pittsburgh was like an armed camp. And this former chief of police in Seattle says, we continue to make the same mistakes. And we will be doing this time and time again in the years ahead, unless we are ready to accept these hard assessments. The only cops that have gotten a pretty good review for how they handled it amazingly are the Baltimore police. Only the police department in Baltimore was credited with handling the protest relatively well. Never using riot gear, deploying officers in ordinary uniforms and encouraging them to calmly engage when necessary, right? So just want to say that. And when you have this former police chief in Seattle, you can tell he just knows. They're not going to learn from it. These are ossified. And and the militarization of the police has got to stop, has got to stop and be rolled back. Be rolled back. If a police officer is by definition um, somebody who serves the community. What does it say on the little thing? To serve and protect. Well, if you're serving and protecting, then you don't do that dressed like a scary warrior. Because that tells the community that they are perceived not as somebody who is served, <laughs> but somebody who is feared and is the enemy and is a threat to the police. It's got to stop. Okay, guys, looks to me like I've done to Amy. Godspeed. I love you. I thank you. And uh, Zach. <laughs> Just want to remind you, Zach, you're starting this gig kind of on April Fool's Day. I'm just saying. But I look forward to working with you. Okay, guys, that'd be it for this week uh, from yours truly. Have a good one. Don't freeze to death tomorrow. And um, I'll talk to you Monday. Bye-bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.